let's go ahead and uh, get started. Welcome back to first hour class. Uh, I tried to get out of teaching this term, but they wouldn't let me. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to be back up here, um, finishing out what, what we started last April. Uh, I've handed out a course uh, schedule of sorts that has the topics that we have discussed starting last April and looks like we will finish at the end of March this year. So um, almost one year exactly we'll have, uh, we'll have gone through this history of the New Testament Christian church and it took us a while to get into the New Testament. I think we had about four introductory uh, classes in which we looked at the intertestamental period as well and all the events leading up to the advent of Christ. Um, and we finished before we closed for the winter break. Uh, we, we looked at the context of the post-ascension Christian church uh, in the context of the Roman Empire and uh, closed with that. And now we're going to resume with a look at how the Christian church was operating. Uh, and then we'll move into some of the ideas and theology that the apostles had put forth uh, as they were expanding the church in the early days, um, then we will look a little bit closer, just like we did with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we will look at the New Testament sources, starting with the general epistles, uh, Peter, Jude, uh, some of the other, some of the, not, not Hebrews, uh, but the, uh, James, some of the uh, general epistles, then we'll look at the Pauline epistles uh, from a critical perspective, or at least answering the critical perspective on the New Testament sources. Uh, Hebrews gets its own week, just because there's so much in it, and the, uh, there's much debate about the book of Hebrews. Uh, then we'll look at, <laughs> I don't enjoy this part, we'll look at the book of Revelation, um, as far as its source, and then we will finish off with a, with a uh, perspective on the book of Revelation, or the apocalypse of St. John, uh, both from two perspectives, the first one being a futurist perspective, uh, which is the idea that the events described in the book of Re Revelation have yet to take place. Uh, all of the events described in the book of Revelation have yet to take place. And then we'll also look at uh, Revelation from a preterist perspective, which is uh, that some of the events in the book of Revelation have already taken place. Uh, there is a preterist perspective that says all of the events in Revelation have already taken place, but uh, that's a very, very small minority. Uh, the two main ones are what's called soft preterism, or that most of or some of the events in Revelation have taken place, and futurism, which is that none of them have. So that's how we will finish off the course, um, and uh, God willing, we will uh, finish on March 31st, 2019. Uh, reminder, next week, and I, this is reflected in the schedule, we will not be having, um, or I will not be teaching first hour class, excuse me. There will be first hour class, uh, but it will be with the missionary who is, who is coming next week. So we'll have first hour class as well as our uh, post-service uh, fellowship meal as well. All right, uh, if you don't recall, if you don't remember, I, we will uh, begin the lesson with both an Old Testament reading and a New Testament reading. And if I could have a volunteer to read Malachi 3, 1 through 4. Anyone got it? Ronnie, you got it? And a, uh, for the New Testament, Hebrews, this is wrong on your paper, Hebrews 13, uh, 7 through 16. All right, thanks, Ken. Malachi 3, 1 through 4. 
Go ahead, Ronnie. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like pour's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old, and as in former years. Thank you. I appreciate the uh, the King James Version. It always reminds me of Handel's Messiah. <laughs> I know. I hear the music. Yep, 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 yep. Uh, and remember that uh, he shall purify the sons of Levi and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem uh, will be pleasing once again. Uh, Hebrews 13, 7 through 16, please. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Now we have this. Yeah, we have a couple more, I think. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Thank you. <clears throat> we have in this, uh, in this passage uh, sort of a summary of uh, some of the offices as well as the, uh, the one office, the high priest, which we'll be talking about, um, and relate that back to the sons of Levi. The, Le- the Levites, of course, were the priestly tribe in the uh, in the old testament um all right let's open with prayer heavenly father thank you for uh, your church we thank you that uh, we have a community of saints that we can gather with this morning uh, in order to worship you and learn more about you i pray that you would bless this time together uh, make it edifying for both our mind and our our soul and we ask that you would be with us and that we would give you glory in jesus name Amen. So we're taking the time this morning to take a look at sort of the <laughs> the administrative part of the New Testament Christian Church. Uh, hopefully, it won't be too boring. The administrative part, uh, sort of the structure and organization, and how things operated uh, after the ascension, uh, and as the church was expanding, starting out in Jerusalem at Pentecost. Uh, we'll also look at the uh, sort of the worship part of the church, how they conducted their worship services, uh, how it was uh, different from the Old Testament worship service, and perhaps how it was similar to the Old Testament uh, worship services. Um, If you remember, in the first couple of weeks of this course, back in April or May, we started talking about what the church actually was, and I made the proposition then uh, that 
in fact, the title of this course reflects it, that we'll be starting the New Testament Christian Church, that I made the proposition that there was such a thing as the Old Testament Christian Church in the sense that uh, the assembled body of elect members chosen by God was anticipating the Christ, looked forward to the Christ, and was awaiting the Christ, and in that sense was a Christian church. Those who were redeemed looked forward to the Christ coming. We, as a New Testament Christian church, look back upon the uh, risen Christ uh, and worship in that respect. So there's two sides, and we're, we're a continuation of that Old Testament Christian church. But this ecclesia, this assembly of the elect, if you recall, uh, has its roots in secular Greek uh, life. It was not a strictly religious term. It had a secular meaning, uh, and it was an assembled body. We might call it a congress today, or a congregation. If you uh, look at those two words, they seem very similar, and that's, of course, uh, not not a coincidence. Uh, but a, we, we call our uh, they, they used to call it the August Body of Congress Assembled. All right, and that we don't call it August Body anymore because there's hardly anything August about uh, Congress nowadays, it seems. But uh, the idea was that this assembled body of elect representatives uh, is is the same idea that we have today as it was in Greek secular life of the ecclesia, uh, in sort of a legislative body or just a an administrative body even. <coughs> Uh, in that sense, if we look at the, the church or the religious connotations of it, there is this assembled body of elect that is coming together to conduct business or to conduct uh, some form of, have some form of purpose. Now, the business of the church, uh, what is the business of the church? Worship. To worship God. All right, that is our business. And I, I don't mean to, to, to denigrate worship down to a sort of financial transaction by any any means, but uh, what we are here to do, our purpose as a church, as an elect body, is to worship God. And so we gather together as a church in order to do that. So we have some similarities between the Old Testament church and the New Testament church in that they both, the Old Testament Jewish congregation and the New Testament Christian congregation, both assembled for the most sublime business of carrying out the demands of our supreme presiding (coughs) officer. And our supreme presiding officer is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the triune God. We are here as a church to study his laws, how they should be applied. We are here to pay homage to his authority and his lordship through our worship and adoration. And we are here also to administer the oaths of dedication, allegiance, and communion through our holy sacraments. We are also here to administer judgment and discipline upon our wayward members. And in this way, the synagogue and the church, the New Testament Christian church are very much the same. That we recognize that God is sovereign and we are here to submit to his authority in humble adoration. But there are, very, there are also differences. And I'll uh, sort of go through broadly what some of these differences are. Uh, between the Old Testament Jewish congregation and the New Testament Christian congregation. Uh, the striking differences is what start, when we start looking at the hows of our purpose is conducted. Uh, how is the church to operate on either side of Christ? That's where we see uh, the manifestation of the earthly Christ, I should say. Uh, how does the church operate um, 
in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, in the Old Testament, we look back at the uh, Levitical laws, we look at, back at the uh, ceremonial laws that were put in place, and we, can, we get the sense that the church uh, was micromanaged, if you will. And I'm not using that as a pejorative term, but details were spelled out very much uh, throughout the Old Testament how the uh, Jewish people were to worship God spelled out in, in intricate detail so they could get it right. And again, remember, this was anticipating the Christ. Law after law, regulation after regulation, procedure after procedure uh, were given to the Old Testament church so they could get their worship correct uh, in worshiping God. Uh, and, and all of these laws, all of these ceremonial laws, were looking forward to their redemption. And, of course, their redemption is through and realized in Christ Jesus. Now, in the New Testament, uh, under the leadership of the apostles and the headship of Christ the King, we see what almost looks like an abandonment uh, of all of these details, these micromanagement, these sort of intricate regulations about how to worship. Uh, the minuteness that characterized the Old Covenant uh, is fulfilled, Right? Christ came to fulfill the law, not to, not to uh, what's the word? I'm at a loss. I came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. Thank you. Right. Not to abolish it. It's not abolished, but it is fulfilled. And so these minute details of ceremonial worship uh, almost get, get no attention. There, there are some exceptions. There are some details about how to worship in the New Testament. But for the most part, uh, it is no longer a micromanaged endeavor. Uh, at Pentecost, we see immediately no longer is the high priest alone given permission to enter the dwelling place of the Spirit of the Lord. Remember in the Old Testament, who was able to enter the Holy of Holies? Only the high priest, and only at one time during the year. Yes? Didn't they have to tie like a rope? Yeah. Yeah, in case he didn't go through all of these uh, ritualistic cleansing, the cleansing rituals correctly, if in case he was not pure, they tied a rope around him so that when he did go into the Holy of Holies, God recognized that there is this impure being in his dwelling place. God would smite him dead, and in order to, of course, no one else could go in and get him, so they had to tie a rope around him in order to drag him out in case he wasn't pure when he entered the dwelling place of the Lord, of the Spirit of the Lord. But what happened at Pentecost? The Spirit of the Lord came to indwell the Christians, right? No longer was it just one high priest at one time during the year able to go into the dwelling place of the Spirit of the Lord, but rather the Spirit of the Lord comes to indwell inside the apostles at Pentecost and the Christians thereafter. <clears throat> so the office of the vicar of the people, and it's a perfectly good word, it's, there's nothing too Catholic about it. Um, the vicar is someone who acts vicariously for the people, and that's what a priest does. As a, they are a vicar of the people unto God, is no longer determined by Levitic heritage. Remember, you had to be a Levite in order to be a priest. But rather, uh, the priest or the, the Levite is, is uh, indwelled by uh, the Holy Spirit. And we, in a sense, are all uh, indwelled by, 
fulfilling that priestly class. So the sons of Levi have been purified, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem are pleasing to the Lord. So now we have the tribe of Judah able to fulfill uh, what the, only the Levites could do uh, in times past. Now, there is also no high priest anymore, at least on earth. <laughs> Who is the high priest? Jesus Christ is the perpetual high priest. Right? Remember in the Old Testament, you can only go into the dwelling place of the Spirit of the Lord at one time throughout the year uh, and uh, make intercession on behalf of the people. Now, how often is Christ making intercession for us? All the time. Well, that's pretty cool. We don't, it's not a one-time thing, one-time-per-year thing. We have a high priest that is perpetually making intercession on our behalf for our sins um, at, the, uh, at the throne of God the Father. So we don't have on earth any need for a ceremonial high priest who must ritualize the cleansing process, go throughout all of these motions just to be considered worthy to enter into the presence of God to plea for the justification of his people. That process is complete. And so likewise have all of the ceremonial laws given been fulfilled. So there's no need for the priests uh, and the people to exercise rituals and uh, abstentions, some of the, it wasn't just a matter of doing things, it was also a matter of refraining from things. The, uh, and the, these laws in the Old Testament that were given in anticipation of the Christ have been fulfilled. Uh, speaking of priests uh, in the Old Testament sense, um, Presbyterians take uh, great delight in recognizing that the actual word priest, P-R-I-E-S-T, is a contraction and is directly derived from the word presbyter. It takes a while to get there, but it, 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 it's a contraction. They shortened it up, they uh, abbreviated it, and uh, turned the word presbyter into what eventually became the English word priest. Uh, and so in that sense, the priest, as it was originally uh, talked about, was synonymous with the word presbyter or elder. Uh, but it did become, in the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church, it started to become synonymous with what, is a, what we consider to be its proper meaning, uh, as a, which is in Greek, it's called an ierus. I think I'm saying ierus. I think I'm, I might be pronouncing that incorrectly. Uh, but it's he who offers the sacrifices and is a mediator between God and the people. Uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, you have uh, the priest as an intercessor correct, that acts as an intercessor between the, the congregation and God. Uh, and that is sort of how we think of a priest today, but originally it just meant, it was synonymous with elder. Um, the, the word hiereus uh, has a, a aspiration on the front, so it's actually hierus, right? there's an H there, uh, and we get our word hierarchy from the same word. H-I-E-R-A-R-C-H-Y, hierarchy. And that is talking about the, this priestly uh, class of people that had uh, levels, had a chain of command, and had uh, a, a, a tiered structure so that the, you know, the high priest was at the top and was the, was the ultimate intercessor between the people and God. <clears throat> and not just in uh, Jewish... Uh, rites or Christian rites, but in uh, many pagan rites as well, they had this hierarchy that had to do with the 
uh, authority structure within the temple. In fact, I think the, the Greek word uh, hieros or something like that is, is, uh, actually means temple. Um, but after the ascension of Christ, the only officers that are mentioned in the church at the time uh, was synonymous with the congregation of Jerusalem, keep in mind, was an apostle. This is at the time of the ascension. An apostle is one who is sent or one who is commissioned. The apostleship was a direct commission from the commander-in-chief, all right, Christ himself, uh, or one acting under the supervision of those directly commissioned. But as the church grew, it became uh, quite clear that these apostles could not practically fulfill all of the obligations of teaching, of worship, of the administrations of the sacraments, of discipline. Uh, as the congregation was growing, uh, there was a need for some help. And so uh, they required, they, they uh, instituted these subordinate officers to administer and minister, uh, administer and minister on local levels. And I say subordinate because they are ordained, all right, subordinate <coughs> or subordinate. And these, uh, these subordinate officers assumed the roles of executive administration as well as expanding the, uh, the church along with the apostles. Uh, these were the subject matter experts, and they were deferred to as such, uh, but there doesn't appear by direct inference to be any kind of clear hierarchical structure of direct authority among these subordinate officers. In other words, you had the, the 12 apostles, and you had these what we call elders, but there doesn't appear to be uh, in the New Testament. Some people will interpret that, interpret that differently, especially the Episcopalians and the, and the Roman Catholics, <clears throat> but there doesn't appear to be a hierarchical structure among these officers in the church. There wasn't, there certainly, in my, in my interpretation, there certainly isn't a primacy of Rome or a primacy of Jerusalem uh, as being the head elder or the head priest. What is now, if you subscribe to the primacy of Rome, you call the head elder or the head priest or the head bishop. The bishop of Rome is called the pope. And so they, they're, had, they're evolved this hierarchical structure, which we'll get into in a little bit, but it doesn't appear to be, in my interpretation of the New Testament, any sort of hierarchical structure described in the book of Acts or in the epistles to the different churches. Uh, the, the hierarchical mindset, which is so prevalent in the Roman Catholic Church and also in the Anglican Church or the Episcopalian Church, uh, is a result of centuries of philosophy uh, that evolved slowly at first and then sort of took root with this Augustinian idea of what is called Neoplatonism. Uh, you look back at the philosophy of Plato, uh, and we call there's Platonism and then there's Neoplatonism, which is a new form of Platonism and often um, associated with Christianity as the Christian church was interpreting Plato and applying it to their own not, not in contradiction with the Bible, but applying it to their own way of life and to sort of help figure out the, the natural and earthly ways in which they could glorify God correctly. And one of the things about Neoplatonism is what is called this great chain of being. And what the great chain of being is, 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 is a philosophy that describes the order and structure of the world. And at the top, you have God. 
This is what Plato said too. All right? it wasn't, this isn't the Christian version, but this is what Plato said. The, the top you have God. And then below this, <coughs> be better if I draw this, I suppose. Put down my cup of coffee. If you have God at the top, then lesser than God, but immediately beneath God, are perhaps what you would call archangels. All right? We're talking about being here. What is the supreme being of the universe? The supreme being, of course, is God. But what's, what's the next supreme being? What's the almost supreme, but not quite supreme, who's just, be- just beneath the supreme? We'll call them the archangels. And just below the archangels, we have, let's say, angels. All right? And we're starting to build a pyramid like this, right? Below the angels, who's the next good, maybe not quite supreme, getting, you know, getting lesser and lesser supreme as we go down? Who's next on the list after angels? Man. All right, so we have man, and we have a whole bunch of men throughout the, throughout the world. <clears throat> and below men would be the beasts, and below the beasts would be the birds, and below the birds would be the fish, and below the fish would be the bugs, and below the bugs would be the uh, bacteria and amoeba. and You just keep going down until you get to the lesser and lesser and the least of all beings. All right, important to understand is that within this structure, there are gradations of manness that are some as one is the ultimate man. The ultimate manness or humanness is uh, typified in the uh, in the ideal realm, but then each in the in the, in the earthly realm there is uh, an idea of man and there is a manifestation of man. But not everyone achieves ulti- it, it arrives near to ultimate manness. Some are more man than others, right? And so you have the supreme man in, the, in Neoplatonism is Christ Jesus as the perfect man, right? But then maybe the next ultimate, next to the ultimate man might be, well, in the Roman Catholic Church, who is it? The Pope. The Pope. Well, it's actually Mary, but <laughs> it's Mary, and then uh, the Pope, and then the cardinals, and then the archbishops, and then the bishops, and then the priests. And, and it's not to say that these are, are uh, innately better morally or... Uh, it's just an idea of achieving the ultimate ideal of what a man is or what a human is. I'm using the term man as a general one. It doesn't exclude women by any means. They forgot Jesus, so isn't that a major error? I'm sorry? They forgot Jesus. Oh, no, no, he's the ultimate man. Jesus is the ultimate man. <clears throat> he's, also the, he's also God, but he's the ultimate man. And then the next in line is Mary and then the Pope and then... Uh, going down to the bishops, the car- or the cardinals, the bishops, the, the priests, uh, down to the laity. All right. So this hierarchical structure uh, was a, a very important part of Neoplatonism, uh, and that sort of helps the Roman Catholic or Neoplatonism helps the Roman Catholic Church justify this hierarchical structure of <coughs> priests and bishops and cardinals and the Pope and then uh, Mary and then Jesus. So we have all of these gradations of humanity within the, in the totality of gradation of being. All right? Does that make sense? Yes, John? Uh, where do the saints fit in? 
Oh, good, good question. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I, they're up there. They're, they're accounted for. I think they're, you know, maybe Mary, the saints, the Pope. It, it, that's probably where I forgot them. Yes? So Augustine uh, became extremely popular in the 4th century, going into the 5th century, uh, 400s, and the idea continued to grow from there. But it wasn't, that wasn't the, the first start of it. There were ideas of it. As the church uh, was struggling with its growth, uh, there's a theory out there actually that says, and I actually subscribe to it, that when Constantine <coughs> converted to Christianity, and uh, this is in 320-something, some, 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 uh, when Constantine converted to Christianity and, in a sense, made it the default religion of the Roman Empire, that uh, allowed church and state to intertwine so much that they uh, had to adopt or began to adopt the same sort of political structure that the Roman Empire had with you know, the emperor at top and then the... You know, the sort of uh, hierarchical structure within the uh, political realm. And the church began to adopt that as they became intertwined with the state. Uh, before Constantine had adopted Christianity, church and state were very much separate. In fact, some blame Constantine for the problem of church and state interaction uh, post-323 AD. And they don't see it as a good thing. Yes? strikes me is uh, out of line is some of the ancient saints. Some of the angels are canonized. Now that, that doesn't make any sense to me because well, angels either go bad and stay that way or they stay good and even the good ones do everything mechanically so they don't seem to have any reasoning power. I, I don't know. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, what's the angel... The, Angelology, I don't remember what it's called, but angel, let's call it angelology, uh, which is not the right word, but I'll use it anyway. Uh, <clears throat> there's a lot out there, uh, and some of it is uh, based on these uh, deuterocanonical books, like the Book of Enoch and, and weird books like that. Um, but I don't want to get too much into that. Uh, I'm going over this because as we look at the officers of the church in the, in the New Testament church, uh, it's all to, 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 to go back to the point that I don't think there was any sort of hierarchical structure in the New Testament uh, that these subordinate officers, uh, subordinate to the apostles, I should say, and that they were ordained under the apostles. I don't mean subordinate in the sense that they are lesser in the chain of command. I mean they're subordinate because they were ordained under the apostles. Uh, the establishment of these subordinate offices don't uh, identify any sort of the, the, any kind of lesser uh, ministerness. If you have the ultimate minister, which is let's call him Paul or whoever you want it to be, there, there's not a lesser ministerness about these elders that are uh, subordained under the apostle uh, within or, or that constitutes a hierarchical structure. Um, if if you subscribe to that, it could be argued that to uh, if you insist on this gradation, like, like the Episcopalians do or like the Roman Catholics do, uh, is to insist that the Holy Spirit imparts his essence in gradation. Since the Neoplatonic structure, like we have up here, uh, is based on the conformity to the essence of God. 
All right, the ultimate man is the one who uh, fulfills God's law perfectly, right? Christ Jesus. And in that sense is in the best conformity to uh, the idea of God that man can be. And so if the Holy Spirit imparts his essence in gradations, it logically follows that the Holy Spirit likewise withholds his essence in gradations. In other words, if only the Pope has the best conformity or best uh, association with the likeness of God and the laity are way down here as far as the essence is concerned, is being conformed to the essence of God, then it logically follows that the Holy Spirit has withheld his essence in gradation. And that makes the inspired command to be filled with the Holy Spirit an impossibility all but for one person, right, who is at the top of this great chain of being, this great, this chain of being, the manness, not the ultimate chain of being, but the manness uh, sub-chain of being. <clears throat> so, going back to the officership, we have presbyters or elders, which is the direct translation, which is a term of status, of, exper- of expertise, or of distinction among peers. It is not a, uh, a term of uh, describing superiority in essence, all right, or manness. It is just it is to uh, describe the office of expertise or distinction or status. Uh, it it uh, describes their experience, it describes their calling, and perhaps their particular gifts. Uh, the office of presbyter and bishop are, in the opinion of many scholars, especially the Protestant scholars, uh, considered to be one and the same. Um, they are distinct, distinguished by their audience, however, and the idea that an eldership or a presbyteros uh, is carried over from the Jewish synagogue, while a bishopric Uh, or episkopos, is carried over from Greek secular assemblies. However, in the New Testament, they are used interchangeably. Um, The Roman Catholic Church doesn't see it that way, uh, and they went out of their way in the Council of Trent in the uh, 1563 uh, to say this, Wherefore, the Holy Synod declares that besides the other ecclesiastical degrees, bishops, who have succeeded to the place of the apostles, principally belong to this hierarchical order, that they are placed, as the same apostle says, by the Holy Ghost to rule the church of God, that they are superior to priests. Remember, priests and presbyteros were originally the same. Uh, Bishop and presbyteros was initially the same. But now, in Trent, uh, the Roman Catholic Church says uh, that bishops are superior to priests, If anyone says that in the Catholic Church there is not a hierarchy by divine ordination instituted, constituting of bishops, priests, and ministers, let him be anathema. If anyone says that bishops are not superior to priests, let him be anathema. All right. I I tend to uh, sympathize, perhaps, with uh, Roman Catholic doctrine more than than some Protestants, Uh, but... I do not sympathize with this at all. All right, this is, in my respect, uh, or my perspective, indefensible. They're wrong. All right, the, 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 I am anathema. I guess. Yes, Margie. So when they, you, you use the word superior a couple times, how would they define higher on that? Yep, <clears throat> higher up on the on the chain. Wow, that's really funny. Yep. <laughs> yep. I, I I do not I. I like I said, I sympathize with, uh, or try to understand, I suppose, uh, the Roman Catholic doctrines 
uh, rather than just say this Catholic equals bad. I think there's a lot uh, good about the tradition of the, his, of, the, of the church that we as Protestants uh, have inherited and, have, and through the Reformation have uh, continued. Um, that, but just, be, you know, just because the Roman Catholics did it one way doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. Uh, but this one is, is bad. All right, this doctrine is bad. Yes, John? Um, please stop me if you already said this, because I know I got here late, but isn't it also true that in the Roman Catholic Church, at least uh, at the time frame you're talking about, um, the level of good conduct and holiness of a priest, for instance, was considerably higher than that expected of an ordinary, common, lay person? That a lay yes. person was only supposed to be a little bit good, right. but a priest was supposed to be Correct. Uh, and this is, we're going to get off track a little bit here, but I, I think that's fine. Um, if you go back to the time of Augustine, they had this controversy, which was called, uh, I hope I don't get this wrong, because I, I get the heresies confused sometimes, <laughs> the Donatist controversy, uh, in which uh, priests or bishops or elders who had sinned or had fallen or had lapsed were being refused their office because they had sinned. And, and the idea evolved into this, uh, the idea that the, the priest or the, the bishop uh, had to be perfect in order to maintain their office. They had to be so spiritually high, they had to be completely perfect in order to maintain their priesthood or their bishophood. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why Augustine wrote his confessions. All right? Augustine is writing in response to the Donatists saying, we, we can't be perfect without you know, the righteousness of Christ. And he went through his past sins, all of his past sins, which are very fascinating uh, to read. Um, and and he, he doesn't hold back. He lets everyone know how sinful he was. Not only how sinful he was, but also how sinful he still is as the Bishop of Hippo. All right? And he's telling the Donatists, um, look, you can't expect the priests to be perfect. Uh, we are all sinful, and we are in need of this ultimate high priest, uh, Christ to uh, intercede for us. Uh, so there's much to like about Augustine, all right? And there's much to misinterpret about, about Augustine as scholasticism uh, seeps into the, the Christian church in the, mid in the Middle Ages, the 10th, 10th century onward. Uh, they start to, uh, that's, a whole, that's a whole different lesson. <laughs> let's, let's keep going. All right, so there are uh, many scriptural sources as well as later sources in church history that contradict this idea uh, at Trent that there has to be a hierarchy and that bishops are necessarily superior to priests. Um, but again, uh, the church was mired in this idea of scholasticism during the Council of Trent, and they were always looking at this great chain of being as the natural order and structure of the universe. It was their presupposition, if you will. They started off with this lens, and they couldn't get away from it. To, to, to get away from that lens was a heresy in and of itself. Uh, so the duties of the bishops and the elders was to teach their congregation. They were pastors and shepherds uh, or uh, teachers. They directed public worship, administered discipline, cared for the spiritual life of their congregation, and managed the property of the church. They formed as a college or as a corporation, or what we call in our denomination a presbytery, uh, learning from each other, serving as an executive board, uh, and learned uh, best practices from each other on uh, how to administer the church. 
Uh, we read of these presbyteries meeting in Philippi and Ephesus, Jerusalem, and at the ordination of Timothy. Uh, incidentally, I did mention this before we broke for the winter, uh, that if you look at the word pres, uh, uh, presbyteros, which is an elder, uh, the uh, companion term to that is bishop, which is episkopos. All right? If you look at the, the word episkopos, that means overseer. All right, if you look at the word supervisor in Latin, that is a super is overseer. All right, so if you consider the episcopos, the bishop is a supervisor and overseer of the congregation. Okay, and I don't mean that as like a boss, but <laughs> they have the supervision. They are charged with the supervision of, uh, of the congregation. All right, moving on to the diaconate. We first meet the deacons in the Church of Jerusalem, which is seven of them. Uh, uh, I, had, I had this uh, all written out, ready to go. And then last week, uh, Pastor Lewis talked about how uh, the seven in uh, Jerusalem weren't necessarily deacons. And I had to go back to this and like, ah, I don't want to get it wrong. Uh, I'm going to use the word that they were, I'm going to use the traditional uh, perspective that they were deacons because the word uh, diakonon or diak diakonane or something like that is used uh, in this description of the seven. But it's not used to, as a title. It's used in what they do. As to, the, the word basically means to serve. Uh, and so I'll call them deacons just for the sake of tradition, for the sake of not having to rewrite my entire lesson. <laughs> uh, these were the helpers, if you want to consider them maybe sort of like the aide-de-camp of the apostles. They helped, the, again, these were uh, described before the office of the elders were even mentioned. Uh, they were assisting in all of the little administrivial details of the church and relieving the apostles of the necessary but ever-growing minutiae for the proper administra administration of their congregation. Uh, other churches followed Jerusalem's example, uh, some even in the number of deacons. Eusebius records in a letter uh, that gave the Roman church in 250 AD, they had 46 presbyters, 46 elders, but only seven deacons. <laughs> they, they held to that number of, of having seven deacons. Uh, in Acts, Luke describes the duties of the deacons uh, as ministering in the serving of tables as well as attending to the widow's needs. And there was certainly attached with these duties a certain obligation to care for uh, the, uh, the health and, and, and welfare of the congregation, uh, to minister to the poor, to minister to the orphans, and to minister to the widows. And we see, therefore, Paul's qualifications of having living uh, for a deacon of having living faith and exemplary conduct in order to serve in the capacity of a deacon. There were also deaconesses in the church, and they weren't always necessarily simply the wives of deacons. Uh, in some Gentile societies, uh, there was a rigid, very rigid separation of the sexes, which required uh, deaconesses to minister appropriately. But unlike the office of, of an eldership, these were not ordained. Uh, they were they were appointed, or probably another term for it, but uh, it's a logical fallacy to assume that simply because deaconesses are described in the Bible that uh, this allows for uh, female preachers or female elders as well. Um, I, don't, I don't believe you can arrive to that conclusion based on what's in the, in the New Testament. All right, uh, I'm going to stop now because it's 1020. 
We're not going to get through my entire lesson. I will try to pick it up next week um, because we still have to go over the worship. I've got three more pages, and I'm not going to get through it. Uh, and I don't want to rush through it because I think it's important. So we'll stop there. Uh, we'll continue next week and uh, looking at the worship of the church. Uh, not, not next week, the week after. Next week is the missionaries. Uh, we'll continue the week after as we look at the, uh, the worship. And this will kind of merge into the theology of the, of the church as well. So I'm, I'm not that concerned about uh, getting behind. So are there any questions? Yes, Lewis. Is there any information about the apostles, like what tribes they reach from? Yes, uh, Caves, Life of the Apostles, uh, written in the 18th century, is a very good source. Um, William Cave, I think, is his name. Uh, it talks about... Uh, does some very it looks at you know not just the New Testament but all of church tradition the early sources as well to look at the apostles and uh, is where we get a lot of our information about the apostles where they ministered how they died that sort of thing yes Barbara just was it deacons that are appointed or the deaconesses that are appointed or both uh, yes okay. right anything else. <clears throat> all right well thank you for your time and I'll uh, go ahead and close this with <clears throat> Heavenly Father as we uh, enter to worship you this morning we uh, ask that you would uh, be with us send your spirit down with this congregation and send your spirit down to be with uh, Pastor Lewis as he ministers as he, is, uh, as he preaches the gospel to us that we're reminded of how perfect you are and how how much we are in need of your, your righteousness to cloak us so that we can enter before you. I pray that you would give us pure hearts, that you would give us uh, a worshipful mind, and that we would uh, enter with awe and adoration uh, in this worship service to glorify you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.